Well, this week, Walt has been leading you on a, a journey with Jesus of Nazareth, uh, uh, the historical Jesus, to say, what do we really know? And to take a look at what scholars, what scholars think and what scholars have written to say, what do we know about Jesus of Nazareth? And last week, we talked about, or, or Walt talked about, Jesus really as prophet and the symbolic acts that Jesus performed while he was in ministry, uh, some of those being, for instance, choosing the 12, which indicated uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so anyway, this week we are going to move and talk about Jesus as teacher. And of course, I wanted to remind you all that the work that is presented here is Waltz. He's already had most of this fleshed out. He taught this lesson on Wednesday. I've only added a little bit to it and taken a little out. So this is... This, uh, this is Walt Markham's work with my voice. So um, here we go. Um, in the first century, Jesus was renowned, of course, as you know, for performing exorcisms and healings and miracles. And it was these things, actually, that brought the crowds. This is, appears to be what mainly drew the large crowds to Jesus, which we could imagine that that would happen today if somebody said, Oh my goodness, my son couldn't walk, and he went and saw this man who laid hands on him, and then he could get up and walk. It would, it would draw a crowd, um, as opposed to somebody's teaching uh, about Scripture. You know, it, it's, so the people tended to come more for the he, to hear about or see uh, the exorcisms, exorcisms, healings, and miracles, and then they got this great teaching that Jesus offered. He's also remembered, of course, as someone who, like the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, performed a series of provocative symbolic acts, and so Jesus is seen then also as a prophet of Israel, one that came, as you know, John the Baptist comes after 400 years of having no prophet, then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and Jesus, along with him, or just after him, performing symbolic acts that uh, create a bit of a stir. But the most common title used for Jesus in the, in the Jesus tradition, of course, is rabbi or rabuni, which means teacher. It could also mean, um, could also mean chief. In, la, in the Hebrew tradition, it could mean chief, um, uh, but it's mostly meant as teachers. But it also refers to someone um, who has a great amount of respect, a very respected person. But in many instances, we're talking about Jesus as rabbi being the teacher. So this is true in all four Gospels. The term teacher is used over 50 times to refer to Jesus, and that is a lot. So that is really how he is seen quite a bit. And the term rabbi is used another 15 times. And so if you do the math on that, we get a total of about 65 times where, teacher, uh, where Jesus is referred to as rabbi or rabuni or teacher. And so that Jesus was a teacher is one of the, the, first, the few things that the first century Jewish author Josephus tells us about Jesus. So we know historically he was known by others as being a teacher because of Josephus' words where he says, About this time there lived a man named Jesus. And he was a doer of wonderful works. So he rec recognized that he also was a healer. He was a doer of wonderful works and a teacher. So this is how a historian describes Jesus, a Jewish historian back in the day. Teacher is a title that was used for Jesus 
also by his closest followers, as we see in the Gospel of Mark. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. We also see in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, uh, this is uh, after the resurrection, Mary comes to the tomb and finds it empty and she's panic stricken. She sees Jesus there but thinks that he is the gardener. And he says to her, so she's saying, Lord, if, if, if you've seen someone take him away or if you've taken my Lord away, um, then, then tell me and I will go, I'll go find him and, and I'll bring him back. And Jesus says to her, Mary, and it's then that she recognizes his voice, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, teacher, which means teacher. Uh, and it literally means, with the I on the end of it, it literally means my teacher, my teacher, my teacher. So it's also, the term teacher is also now how, how Jesus was known by the larger community as well as strangers, as we saw through Josephus. And we see this in, also in the Gospel of Matthew. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So he was even seen to be a teacher by outsiders. They recognized that he had a following. And then in Matthew 9, 16, Then someone came to him, and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I think if you were in Paul's service this morning, you heard this passage, didn't you? What must I do to have eternal life? And so this, this rich young ruler or rich young man, depending on what story you're reading, um, addresses Jesus as teacher. And so according to the Gospels, this is even how Jesus understood himself. He understood himself as a teacher. And we see this in the Gospel of John. You call me teacher, and you're right. It's like Alex for 100 points. You're right. You call me teacher, and you are right. For that is what I am. So if I, your teacher, have washed your feet, here's the lesson. Students, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So Jesus even sees himself as teacher. And then again in Mark, Jesus says, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks. So he's saying, let people, he's even referring him to himself to tell, to tell him that your teacher needs this. Your teacher asks about this. So Jesus is presented as the oral, is also presented as this oral teacher par excellence. And we'll see this in the Gospel of John. When Nicodemus comes at night, Nicodemus is the leader of the Jews. He comes to Jesus, and we hear this about him. Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Could there be a teacher any better, right, if God has sent you and God is empowering you? We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So he is seen and elevated as a great teacher, very revered. 
And so today, we find it easy to think of Jesus as a teacher because that's what we've always heard and read and known. Jesus came and he taught and he healed and he preached. Um, but our traditional image of Jesus as teacher um, may be a little misleading because the contemporary portrait of Jesus has probably been uh, disproportionately shaped by the images that come out of Matthew's gospel or the account of the Sermon on the Mount because that is where he's seen in the greatest light as teacher. We know that he, he gathers a, a crowd together and he's up on the mountain and so and a lot of his teachings come from the Sermon on the Mount and so this is probably where we see most of this. And it's an image which has been reinforced, of course, by countless pieces of art, which we, you see here, that Jesus is high up on a mountain, and there are thousands gathered before him, and he gives this long extended speech, the Sermon on the Mountain, and in Luke it's the Sermon on the Plain. And in, in Matthew it goes for about three chapters. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we've done a study of in here. Uh, and it covers a wide range of topics. And so we see him as the teacher in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we get, the image we get is literally known, that of a sermon given on a mountain. And if you have been to Israel, which I haven't, but I bet some of you are, can nod enthusiastically and see, you can even see the place where tradition says that this happened. Has anybody been there? Oh, I'm so jealous. That's wonderful. That's great. Um, but, Walt would say, is this really an accurate picture? Is this the way that Jesus likely taught? Or is this more likely a literary construct by Matthew? Because we know with Matthew taking, take, with Matthew taking teachings that Jesus would have given in a variety of other settings. For instance, um, I get asked to teach Sunday school classes a lot. And I don't come up with sometimes a new lesson for every class every time. I'll teach about the book of Ruth in here, and then I'll teach it to the good news class and the first light class, or I'll teach it in different settings. So I'm teaching the same material, but in small pockets in different places. And it's suggested that perhaps that Jesus may have taught, of course, when he did, if he did the Sermon on the Mount, he would have taught material to lots of people in lots of places, and perhaps Matthew may have taken this, the sayings of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and as a literary construct placed them on the mountaintop, and we're going to see why. He's presenting Jesus, whether it's a literary construct or not. Jesus is being presented because he's on the mountain and he's giving an interpretation of the law. You've heard it said, uh, you've heard it said, do not what? Yeah, don't, do not kill or, do not, or don't commit adultery. But I say to you, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's doing a, a reinterpretation of the law, of the Ten Commandments. And so he's presenting Jesus as the new Moses on the mountaintop, giving the new Torah or the new law uh, as the original Moses did on Mount Sinai. And so when historians examine the Gospels and, and the world of the first century, the image they get is very different from Matthew's. What they find, and Matthew's narrative reads more, <coughs> more like a literary construct than an account of an oral teaching. And historians think that it's more likely that Jesus would have normally have traveled from village to village, like I do from Sunday school class to Sunday school class, would travel from village to village 
engaging in small groups of people in casual conversation. You know, let's just all sit down and gossip about, about God and about the law. And let's, let's, have a, let's have a nice discussion in this synagogue and that synagogue and, and let's gather together. Um, and so Jesus' audiences seem to have been primarily the common people. Uh, and perhaps in the villages or in the countryside of Galilee because uh, it's this view supported by his location in Galilee and his avoiding the cities in Galilee. And, of course, the language, the, simp- the use of agrarian metaphors about scattering seed, you know, and, and uh, uh, vi- uh, laborers in the vineyard and day workers who uh, go out to find work and they work different times of day. And so these agrarian images tend to make us think that he's in places that are not as highly populated. But the vast majority of his teaching seems to fit more, of course, in this casual conversational style of teaching and that Jesus drew large crowds through his healing. Of course, I mean, and we would all say that's beyond a doubt. Jesus did draw crowds. Every one of the gospels says Jesus drew crowds wherever he went. Um, that he, his teaching occurred in these settings as he was healing is also historically plausible, though perhaps not in as, as huge a thousands as, you know, there could be a little exaggeration going on, literary license or artistic license, um, maybe or maybe not. But in some ways, Jesus' teaching was um, surprisingly orthodox. We think about him being very radical. In some ways, it was very orthodox. Uh, his halakha or his interpretation of the Torah as he goes back through the law, placed him well within the mainstream of Jewish tradition. And this is especially true of the content of what he says and how he interprets the Torah. Again, when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, um, he is, his focus is on, as in the Ten Commandments, the first, the first of the Ten Commandments is all focused on love of God, right? And the second is on love of neighbor what is the greatest commandment you shall love the lord your god with all your heart your mind your soul your strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself and so this is all centered on the law and so in that respect jesus is very orthodox he he presses for love of god and love of neighbor but in other ways his teaching was strikingly different from the judaism of his day and caused a great amount of controversy that of course led him to be crucified Uh, and so there were really there were four pillars of second uh, temple Judaism that were really focused on Uh, the first was monotheism there is you know there is one God and one alone so monotheism uh, the Torah the law the Ten Commandments and the laws that surround the Ten Commandments uh, the temple was, of course, very big in Second Temple Judaism. You went to the temple and took sacrifices for all sorts of things, but especially for um, guilt offerings and thank offerings. Uh, a lot of teaching went on at the temple. So a life, a lot of life went on around the temple. So temple was very central. And then, of course, election, that God's chosen people, that the Jews were God's chosen people. And so those were the four pillars of Second Temple Judaism. Jesus clearly embraced the first tr- two, uh, monotheism and Torah, 
but his relationship with the second two is much more complex and sometimes even adversarial. So we're going to take a little look at that right now. It's striking that we find very few references. When Jesus is talking and teaching and going about, he doesn't talk a lot about the temple, does he? Not a lot, but we do find a little bit. So we, we find very few references to the temple, uh, and we find very few references for him talking about sacrifice or the priesthood. As a matter of fact, when he's talking with priests, what's usually happening? <laughs> they're, in a, they're having a showdown, right? He's usually insulting or having an argument with them or, or calmly showing them up in some way. And so, um, so that's very striking. So we find few references to the temple or the sacrifice or the priesthood. Uh, the one time that we have an account of Jesus visiting the temple during Holy Week. Now, we know he visited the temple. He was presented there as a child. His parents were very orthodox, right? So he was presented as a baby at the temple. He went back as a probably a 12-year-old and hung out at the temple for three days and taught kind of uh, uh, really uh, just surprised everyone there about how smart he was. Um, and we know that he taught um, in the temple grounds. He would gather people together, and he would, and he would teach at the temple. Um, but the one time we have an account of Jesus visiting the temple during Holy Week, what is he doing? He's, yeah, he is, he's attacking its leaders, verbally attacking the leaders and driving people out uh, because of the way that the money exchange is going on. They're really... Uh, not that you can have to buy your lamb or your dove to make your sacrifice. That was all very orthodox. But it was the fact that when the money was being exchanged, the exchange rate was probably a little too high, and the money changers were slipping money into their own pockets. And so he, he's, having, he's, he's cleansing the temple during Holy Week. And so it's, uh, it's popular in some scholarly circles today to paint this portrait of Jesus as anti-temple, but the picture that we get in the Gospels is, is, of course, more complicated and nuanced than that because Jesus is a good Jew. Um, and there are stories about Jesus and his teaching that seem to hold um, the temple and its function in a very good light. For instance, um, and, and even if it's not true for those that run the temple, like its leaders. For instance, uh, there's one time when he heals a leper. And after the healing, remember, he... He says, you know, go to the priest. He sends him to the priest, and he says, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. So there is um, a reverence for what goes on at the temple. Um, also, he, re he lifts up the widow who gives her offering to the temple, the temple treasury. Remember, the widow's mite, she gives just this her little mite, which is about all that she has, and he lifts her up as a model of piety, and all of this happens at the temple. Uh, he also speaks of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And in that parable, you remember, the two are praying side by side, and the Pharisee is very proud, and he says, uh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector. I'm, I'm so much better than that. And the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me. And so Jesus uh, lifts up the tax collector as the one who has been forgiven. And this is all centered on the temple. So he's, he shows that there is a place for the temple and that uh, there is a reverence for it, even though he's not happy with the way the leaders are running things. 
It's also telling that the last night that Jesus was alive, he celebrated Passover with his disciples, which of course is a festival centered on temple teachings in the temple. You, in order to, to uh, have the, sac- the Passover meal, what, what, what was the main course? The main course of the meal is lamb, yeah. And where do you get the lamb? From the temple. It has to be the, the priest had to slaughter the lamb and bless it. And so, um, so, he, so he's, there is something that's centered around the temple there in his last meal. But John's gospel also indicates that Jesus would teach both in the synagogue and in the temple, um, where we see this in, in John 18. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So he's at the temple, and the high priest is there and, of course, trying to catch him, trying to get something. And Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues, so that's been his custom, and in the temple where all the Jews come together. So this is, uh, he's, he spends lots of time in the temple. Um, so he appears to have been a very observant Jew, and this included being part of the temple. And it does not appear that he had a problem with the temple itself. It's the leaders he has a problem with. But it's also true that Jesus' ministry and teaching were not centered on the temple. He doesn't have a problem with the temple, but his teaching isn't centered on the temple or on sacrifice or on the priesthood, and that there's a tension as we see all through the Gospels, all four Gospels, there's this tension between Jesus and the temple leaders that, of course, leads to his execution and his crucifixion. And this, te- this tension shows up in some of the anti-temple acts and comments made by Jesus. And, of course, we already have talked about one of those. But remember, um, he is offering in places in the Gospels, he's offering what the temple offers without the temple. And mainly, that's forgiveness of sin. You know, when they drop the paralytic through the ceiling and he says, your sins are forgiven? (gasps) No one can do that but God. And, of course, God's forgiveness was given from God through the priest to you or to the people who came. And so Jesus is offering what the temple offers without the temple, which is just scandalous, scandalous. And, of course, he does the cleansing of the temple, which really riles people up, or the leaders. And then he says, the temple is going to be uh, destroyed, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Well, doesn't that sound high and mighty? Yeah, it does. So he's saying that it's going to be destroyed, and it's rebuilt in three days. And so what is the temple then? What is becoming the temple, replacing the temple? Himself, yeah. Jesus is, Jesus becomes the replacement for the temple. And he says, not one stone will be left standing. And of course, I think he's referring to um, uh, AD 70 when the Romans completely destroy the temple and not one stone is left standing, but Jesus is, all right? So, like John, Jesus' ministry and his message are not cultic. For John, it's about um, repentance. And for Jesus, it's about the kingdom of God. So, 
the Jesus' ministry and his message are not cultic and it's not about the temple. Jesus is focused on obedience to God through the Torah rather than this cultic observance. You're gonna, you, I want you to be obedient to the law, but not by all this letter of the law stuff and making sure that every I is dotted and T crossed. And what's most striking about the teaching of Jesus is the way that he approached the fourth pillar of Second Temple Judaism, and that is election. Jesus' teaching is profoundly at odds with this exclusionary um, tendency that had become so prevalent in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Um, uh, Jesus' teaching, like many other aspects of his ministry, appears to be especially critical of the exclusionary way election was being interpreted. Um, for instance, his, like, his teaching, like his ministry, is focusing on reaching out to and including those that society had excluded, those who would not have been allowed in the temple, those who couldn't come to worship, those who were unclean, those who couldn't be touched, um, those who were seen as sinful in some way or unclean, those had been left out, not only them, but also the Gentiles. You couldn't come. You could only come so far into the temple grounds if you were a Gentile, right? Only Jews were allowed so far. You couldn't, you couldn't get as close to God as a good Jew. And so um, he critiques how election has become identified with being separate from the non-elect. And so central to Jesus' teaching, as we all know, is the inclusion of the outsider. And that is an aspect uh, of many of his parables. Not only is that, of course, it's very, that is also very orthodox. If you go back and you look at the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, uh, Ruth was an outsider. Um, who, uh, what are some other big outsiders? Uh, Rahab was an outsider. Tamar was an outsider. That um, When Jonah goes to Nineveh, the whole message of the story of Jonah going to Nineveh is that God cares for other people. That uh, the Ninevites were horrible. They had destroyed. Uh, they had come in and they had taken over the northern kingdom. And God is saying, I love them too. And I want to save all people. Um, and so Jesus' teaching goes back to the core of the Old Testament teaching. And this is an aspect in many of his parables. The parables repeatedly make the outsider the insider. Aren't they wonderful? Like the good Samaritan. You know, the, the Samaritan is the outsider, but he's the one who really gets it, right? Um, the lost son um, or the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the one who really comes back and says, Man, I have sinned before. Father, I have sinned before God and you. Please forgive me. I want to I be your servant. And it's the one who's been faithful, the son who's been around all those years. Remember? He's the one who gets mad, right? He's like, But Dad, you're going to forgive him? I've been here all this time being a good boy, and you're going to let him in? That's not fair. You're going to throw him a party? Why don't you throw me a party? And he goes, son, you've always had everything I own. So those who come late to the game or those who are outsiders can become insiders if their heart is, is right with God. Uh, the widow's might. 
she's giving excessively out of all that she has. She's giving very little, but she's giving much of herself. Um, and then, of course, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector was seen as a very sinful person because they'd probably cheated people in the past to make their money, and he comes and, and announces, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Uh, and the Pharisee's very proud. He doesn't get that there's anything wrong with him. So the parables repeatedly make the outsider the insider. And the rich man, of course, and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man sees not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, another Lazarus outside his gates who has sores on him, who's, who's poor, and he won't give him anything to eat or a drink of water. And, of course, um, he is the one that ends up being elevated because he's such a good, he's a, he, He's close to the Lord's heart. So Jesus also makes this explicit in his teachings, not just the, the parables, but um, when Jesus called them in Matthew 20, Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Not so with you. You're going to be different. You're going to pe treat people differently. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. And this comes when the, when the disciples come and say, hey, can I be at your right hand? Can I be, can I be the best? And he says, no, if you're, if you're, you need to be the servant. For I came to serve and not to be served. So most of Jesus' parables turn the tables they reverse what is expected and they embrace the outsider uh, which is unusual for that day and they even elevate the outsider which was just unheard of and so first century Juda Judaism then is it and this sounds familiar to me today uh, first century Judaism, Judaism is obsessed with who's in and who's out it's it's like a those uh, Hollywood shows on TV at night, you know, who's in and who's out, who's saved and who's not. Um, th there's an obsession with that. Who's included among God's people and who is not. S it sounds familiar. It could be happening with us today. Doesn't it happen among our religious circles? These people, God hates these people. Oh, really? I thought, I, I didn't know that. God wouldn't say that. You know, God hates these kind of people. Fill in the blank. Um, so who's included among God's people and who is not was big. Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Who's saved and who's not? And Jesus not only selects a method of teaching that's grounded in the prophetic tradition, his radical message of inclusiveness is also grounded in the prophetic tradition, as we've seen from Old Testament readings that it's, he is grounded in Old Testament tradition. So the priests in the temple, while they were concerned about excluding others, the message of God through the prophets was one of radical inclusion. And we see this in Isaiah. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. All the nations shall stream to it. All the nations. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path so there's this vision of everyone from all over the, the world coming together to God's house as one 
For out of Zion shall go forth instruction. So the house of uh, Israel would be teaching. Israel would be the example of what, who God is and how God loves. And then the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, of course, would go out from Zion, and that would draw everybody in. You will be the light of the world, right? So this theme is constant throughout Jesus' teaching in the, in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost son and the lost coin, um, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember the workers who come late to the game? We have workers in the vineyard who go out early in the morning and then some at noon and some at the end of the day. And when they all show up at the end of the day to get paid, they all get paid the same thing. And what do you think the workers who started off at 6 a.m.? Yeah, they're not too happy about that. And um, so God says, I, it, it's up to me. I'm, I'm the one who sets the wages, right? I can pay whoever I want, however much I want, and I can give as much grace as I want. And so the, the outsider becomes the insider. We're turning things upside down. And by, nef- by definition, if we talk about the Good Samaritan, a neighbor in those days was the fellow Jew. And yet, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the only one who proves to be a neighbor is who? Yeah, yeah, is the only non-Jew. Everybody else who walks by and passes the fellow on the side of the road is Jewish, except for the Samaritan. And so he proves to be the good neighbor. And so in the parables like the prodigal son, God is embarrassingly over the top and inappropriate in grace and forgiveness. Aren't we lucky? (laughs) Embarrassingly over the top and inappropriate in grace and forgiveness. That's a great image for Lent. And he's over the top for grace and forgiveness to the outsider. And so the content of Jesus' teaching, um, while you think, well, is it about What's the good news? Jesus is teaching the good news. Was that, would that be about the resurrection? Because that's, that's our good news when we talk about the good news. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. Jesus came proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, which we're going to get into later. I'm not going to give those beans away today. Um, though the kingship of God is an ancient and common Jewish concept. Uh, God is king was really big in all of Old Testament reading. And the term kingdom of God, though, is strikingly absent from the Hebrew Bible. If you look back in in old passages, we see God as king, but kingdom of God, the term is really not used. This phrase, kingdom of God, only begins to show up about the time of Jesus. Um, The Wisdom of Solomon was written about somewhere after 30 B.C., and here are these words. So we see this, wor- this imagery and this wording popping up. Wisdom guided him, and this is God's wisdom, Sophia. Wisdom guided him in direct ways. She showed him the kingdom of God. And, of course, that was written about 30 B.C. So this is about the time of Jesus. And then, of course, in the Psalms of Solomon, which was written around the same time, up maybe as late as the first century, We hear these words, but we hope in God our Savior for the strength of our God is forever with mercy and the kingdom of our God is forever over the nations. And so this term kingdom of God is is a relatively new term when Jesus comes onto the scene and the content of his teaching was proclaiming the kingdom of God, which we are going to 
look at in a couple of, of next week, uh, and we're going to look at how his, the kingdom of God for Jesus is breaking into the present. When he, as he comes in, we're inaugurating the kingdom of God with Jesus' uh, presence and Jesus' ministry. And so we're going to explore that in more detail next week, um, and we'll see that his primary teaching method was through the use of parables, um, they were teaching tools that had, of course, a message and a point of, that Jesus is trying to get across. And they force hearers to draw their own conclusions. It's kind of topsy-turvy. Um, we are going to move on from here because we need to go. Um, we're going to go past the parables. We're going to talk more about the parables in a couple of weeks. And so according to the Gospels, parables are, are the primary way that Jesus spoke to people, the primary way he taught, uh, though he didn't always teach his disciples through parables. If you read, like when you read the parables, sometimes you go, I didn't get that at all. You read the parable, you go, what in the world does that mean? Well, then he would come back to his disciples and say, okay, let me, let me tell you what this meant. <laughs> well, thank you, because I didn't get it. Um, and so we see that. In Mark, and again, we're going to pick that up in two weeks and look more closely at that. And so, his disciples, like we do, struggled with, with like, ex would you explain this to us? And so he would come back. And so, two weeks, we're going to explore the use of parables in more detail. But next week, we're going to come back and look at this thing called the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, "I," when it says he came teaching the kingdom of God, what does that mean for us? And it's pretty exciting stuff. So we hope. You'll be with us next week as we talk about Jesus' teaching the kingdom of God.